to Great Ideas, a series about the ideas that have shaped the world we live in, created in association with Victoria University of Wellington. I'm Megan Whelan, and in this series we'll look at what it takes to change our perspective, consider why these ideas still matter, and what happens next. In this episode, we'll look at how revolutions shape and were shaped by fashion, literature, and the visual arts. We'll also look at moments that change the arts forever, and where the artist's responsibility lies in revolutionary times. I'm joined by a panel of experts from Victoria University, and I've asked them to tell me what their favourite piece of revolutionary art is. Thank you, Megan. My name is James Meffin, and I teach English literature. And my favourite piece of revolutionary art, literature, is J.M. Kutsia's novel Life and Times of Michael Kay. And why? Why? Well, the novel Life and Times of Michael Kay is... A story about, an, as most of Kutsia's uh, protagonists are, is an outsider. And Michael Kay is not someone who participates in the revolution that is going on around him. Um, in fact, he's someone who seems to be bent on escaping from all of the camps, as he, he thinks to himself. Um, now, it's an interesting novel because Kutsia was taken to task by having a character who does not make history, does not involve himself in history, but seems to seek to hide himself away from this. And um, without giving too much away, um, Kutsia's fellow novelist, Nadine Gordimer, attacked Kutsia for failing to pay attention to um, uh, show due respect to the revolutionary activity that was going on all around them in, um, in apartheid South Africa. The interest for me is precisely in the tension between these two assumptions about what revolutionary art can and should be. Um, I think uh, the historical view suggests that in many respects Kutsia was perhaps the more revolutionary thinker for going into a line of thought that asked what is um, in a way unrevolutionary about the revolution to what extent is the um, seeking of power by the disenfranchised just setting up another system of um, power and another group of oppressed. Hello, I'm David Maskell from Art History at Victoria University. And uh, my favourite uh, work of revolutionary art is a remarkable portrait of the left-wing revolutionary Jean-Paul Marat uh, by Jacques-Louis David painted in 1793. It depicts the recently assassinated uh, deputy slumping in his bath, uh, writing or putting the, the last words to a letter. And it's a remarkable image because it's the first time really in the history of art that an ordinary person has been depicted as a Christian martyr. David is using the um, imagery of Christian martyrdom for a political figure. And it's a moment that changed the history of art. In fact, some people refer to this as the first modern work of art. I'm Margaret Medlin. I'm the head of classical voice at the New Zealand School of Music, Victoria University. My favourite work of art is Richard Wagner's opera Tristan and Isolde. And why? Because it's so in hypnotic, enchanting, timeless, uh, makes time stand still. 
In it, Richard Wagner breaks down the framework of classical music. He destroys harmonic structures and things that we as humans were expecting to hear and makes us very unsettled. At the same time, he portrays deep and intense human emotions on a grand scale and a timeless scale in a way that draws you in so that you don't really know that it is actually five hours long. Um, Which is a skill. It's a, it's a total skill. <laughs> You know, it's like it's like reading Lord of the Rings, isn't it? Which completely draws you in, and you you one gets put off by the thickness of the book, but actually, once you're hooked on it, it makes a big difference. In the same way, Richard Wagner's works, he, he's not interested in the day-to-day scale of things. He's interested in really deep emotions that many that make us human, that many of us bury, and he brings them to the surface. And in some respects. It's not just the text, but the music makes us examine what it is to be human. Is that where art is at its most revolutionary? Leaving aside something like uh, an artist uh, who is sort of deeply involved in a revolution itself, is that where art is at its most revolutionary when it's showing us who we are and what it means to be human, do you think? Well, I think some people do need to to be shown what it is to be... We all need to be shown what it is to be human. Equally... Uh, for a standalone piece of art to break down uh, accepted barriers and conformations of style is an artist's duty. That's why an artist is an artist, is to confront society and societal expectations and provoke people. And there are very famous examples of art, uh, like Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, for instance, where there was a riot at the first performance uh, which was was certainly not accepted, and Richard Wagner had a lot of fights on his hand, and people who just wouldn't sit through that sort of music or even confront their own feelings to the music. So I think that is a responsibility. Do you agree with that, David? Is is, mm. is that what makes it an art? Like you can't just be painting pretty landscapes; you have to be doing something to be considered an artist. Well, I think um, Margaret's point about uh, making art that is confrontational is crucial to it being revolutionary. And in the case of David, I mean, you know, I can't think of any other period in in history when an artist of that genius was intimately involved in the events that he's depicted. Because he was he was a revolutionary. He was a revolutionary. Mm, yeah. He he signed the death warrant of a king. Wow. Um, so that I mean, so his, that painting that you're talking about, it depicts him uh, depicts Marat in in the bath where he often worked mm-hmm. um, and and there are as you say the, the the symbolism of the martyrdom what was he trying to convey what idea was he trying to, to convey I think what David was trying to depict was the, the 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 fundamental shift from a god-centered universe to a human one you know that 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 this political deputy could actually now be treated as a Christian martyr. And, of course, you know, at this precise moment, Christianity was outlawed. They changed the calendar so that the birth of Christ was no longer the the beginning of the calendar. Uh, It was an attempt to uh, wipe the slate of history clean. And do you think he would have known, uh, he would have had an understanding that, that painting it in that way would also, as well as 
what was going on in the world as well as the, the revolutionary aspect of what was happening in the world, that it would actually revolutionise painting, that it would revolutionise oh, yes. art. He Absolutely. knew exactly what he was I doing. Knew, he knew exactly what he was doing. And, you know, his influence um, remained for the next generation of, of French art, even though the monarchy was restored. Um, James, do do literary artists think the same way? When you're writing a novel, when you're sitting down and writing a novel, are you aiming to change the world? Well, I, I suspect that the idea of aiming to change the world, actually what we've heard here is, is that um, there's the formal aspect of any work of art and, and its content. And, and your initial question really was directed towards the content, you know, must the artist engage with what is going on and show these moments? But the answers coming back are all to do with what is revolutionary about the, um, the attack on form. And I think that artists often find themselves um, quite, or if, if not find themselves compromised, find themselves um, being asked to compromise with respect to one or the other. So the um, debate that I uh, flagged up between Gordimer and Kutsia was one, in a way, about form. Um, Gordimer, a classical um, realist, Marxist felt that the important role was to speak truth to power um, and because she felt she represented uh, the revolution in South Africa, then it was important that the art was accessible. Kutsia was going to have none of this accessibility. He, he saw the artist's responsibility to the art per se. So there's a tension there, isn't there? That there's, there's not an easy answer, but I think that if I'm picking this up correctly, what we've all identified is, in fact, the importance of the formal revolution attached to the cultural revolution, if you like, the social revolution. Yeah. And part of that is, is actually just that you mentioned the word accessible. Part of that is about the language that people use, the the um, not, not even just the... I guess the, what the story is about. In that particular case, it really was about the actual language that was used. Yes, absolutely. So in that in that particular argument, um, there was a concern about well, someone someone described um, and and possibly the most backhanded attack on Kutsia's novel that he what he was offering was a coterie of um, modernist thinkers in South Africa, which was implicitly all white, uh, some kind of masturbatory release. You know, while Rome was burning, <laughs> there were these artists off gazing at their navel, navels. And so that, that kind of tension um, endures in many, many situations. Mm. Uh, and I think the, the works of art that endure seem to be um, pretty reliably the ones that have been provocative um, in their manner of representation as much as for what they represent. I saw someone on Twitter saying uh, the great thing that's going to come out of Donald Trump as president is the um, protest art and songs that, that are, and writing that's going to happen. Do you think artists need difficult times to be able to create art? Margaret, I'm going to throw that one to you. I think that an adversarial component to life stimulates artists. If artists are too comfortable then everything becomes too easy and too comfortable. Most works of genius are born of difficulty and hardships and confrontations uh, and provocations. And there has to be a reason to change things. There has to be someone fighting against it. And I th it seems to me that those situations, just as you describe as mm -hmm. the possible difficulties of Trump's presidency, will provoke an interesting and maybe 
stimulating reaction. So is that what provoked Wagner? Something like that? I think it was it was always difficult, his life. And I think his concept in his mind of the way that music was going, he was a person who just went his own way. His personal hardships, I mean, he was at, at the end of his life funded by King Ludwig of Bavaria, the mad, mad king who, bought, who built Neuschwanstein, who funded him and built his own theatre to his own specifications. So that was like the best piece, I suppose, to have your own theatre in which your own works were presented in the best acoustic. I mean, what more could an artist... <laughs> what more could any of us want? That sounds great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tristan Isolde was written at a time in the middle of the Ring Cycle, which was a tetralogy um, for operas together. And the, the sheer mental... Um, feat of writing this lengthy opera in a way of melodic uh, and harmonic disintegration at the same time as writing the ring cycle for operas which were quite straightforward harmonically is quite mind-boggling mm. so whether he needed that intense work and that intense pressure on it maybe he did that himself as, and we all know artists who put that pressure on himself, themselves to in to create that those difficulties. And you've said that he, um, one of the things that he changed is having a, a form of artistic control over the audience. Can you explain yes. what you mean by that? Prior to Richard Wagner, opera was a social event. So people went into these theatres which, in which the auditorium lights were up. So it was more about being seen and who you were with and what your dress was like and surveying the other members of the audience. And So the first ten minutes of the opera now just carried on. Yeah, yes, yes. Well, well, I mean, time. quite, or having flirtations and, you know, boxes at the opera had curtains for a very good reason because what went on behind the curtains was no one else's business or maybe was. Um, so, you know, so he stopped that because the auditorium at Bayreuth is very plain. There are no boxes. The, all the attention is focused on the stage and the lights were dimmed so people could not see others in the audience. They couldn't convey messages. And the focus not only was on the stage but also not on the conductor because he c created a cover over the orchestral pit and as we know conductors are very fond of the limelight so the conductor was not able to have this limelight and the attention was completely focused on the stage, on his works. And on the on the uh, the musicalness of it or the drama or the story, what, what was he trying to get people to do? Wagner wrote both. He wrote his text for his music, mm. so he had total control of what he did. So I think it was both. The other thing that he did, I guess, is is change uh, how performers performed. It, it was a very different thing for a performer to perform Wagner than almost anyone else. Yes, and it was a huge impact upon the singer's body, mainly because of the length. A very famous singer called Birgit Nilsson said the main the main useful thing for being an um, asset for being a Wagner singer was a comfortable pair of shoes because she was on her feet for three or four hours at a time. <laughs> um, and that's not to mention the sheer training of getting your body and the muscles ready, the, mm. the physical embodiment ready to sing for three or four hours. Mm. The opera I was speaking about, Tristan Isolde, I've sung Isolde. The first act is 75 minutes singing straight through. Good Lord. The second act is, oh no, and no, I counted it, and the second act is 63 minutes and then you have a couple of hours off and then you sing 20 minutes. So, you know, the, the sheer, the feat of keeping your... The text in your mind mm. took me two months to memorise yeah. it. And then every second day I had to write it out and it took me two or three hours to write a text out. That's how I kept it in my mind. Good Lord. Yeah. Is it is 
I don't know. I, I come back to this idea, David, of of the difference between art as uh, this this pushing of boundaries and ideas and pushing everyone involved. So not just the not just the audience, but the the artists themselves. In that particular case, the performers, as opposed to just you know painting a pretty landscape, mm. painting by numbers. How do um, how do you examine that as an artist? How do you, like how do you make yourself push that boundary? Or how do artists do that for themselves? Well, taking the case of David, I mean, I think there's an interesting parallel with with Wagner in that, um, you know, David blew everyone else out of the park. Figuratively. Figuratively. (laughs) Um, You know, there are a whole lot of artists who we now uh, have tried to recuperate who were, you know, very well known in their time. but, But David's force of personality and his single-minded view of what art should be meant that there was no room for dissenting views. So he established a studio in which he trained his students in a kind of Freudian relationship with him. You know, um, there were no women. Women were were completely excluded from um, the artistic project. Um, And anyone who crossed him, he, he got rid of. Which was different to Wagner, just to go back to women. That was mm. he made roles for women that no one else really had, in in an interestingly contradictory way, because he was very much a chauvinist, and while he died in Venice halfway through an article, sort of resurrecting the um, the, the the feminist power, but he. <coughs> At the same time, he wrote these operas with very, very powerful roles for women mm. who essentially saved the world, or especially in the ring cycle, they saved the world. Mm. And in the case of Parsifal, the last operas, Kundry facilitates everything, mm. and Isolde is the facilitator. It's all to do with, yeah, in a very interesting way. But I, everything that David says, I agree, is, is the single-mindedness, the obsessiveness, the absolute intention to do it their own way, the only right way, because that idea is in the mind and the same as David, Wagner would walk over everyone to get what he wanted. You also have to be pretty single-minded to write a novel. Mm. <laughs> yes, well, especially when you're under attack. And I mm. think the interesting thing with Kutsir is that uh, famously he's he's not one for interviews. Generally speaking, he's, he's very um, uh, reclusive, you know, all, all of those sort of cliches really about, about the artist. Um, and, you know, truly he let, let his own work do the talking. Um, but he does, in, in one of his rare interviews, he does uh, talk about one of the um, battles that every artist fights, even in good times, even when there isn't a, a revolution raging around them. And this is what um, well, Martin Amos uses the term, the war against cliché. Uh, and Kutsia talks about the automatism of language. And, and I find this really interesting. It's something that uh, I also find that a lot of my students get. If you ask someone... Uh, have they tried writing? Yes, everyone's tried writing, you know, writing their own story in particular. And what makes them most dissatisfied is they see that the words come out and they roll onto the page and they sound about right. And at first everyone's feeling, you know, the writer is feeling pretty pleased with themselves. This looks like real writing. Then they think, none of this sounds new. I I haven't done anything that hasn't already been heard before and the, the the real challenge is to think of to find a mode of voice that is singular and distinctive and does not seek to 
uh, seek the approval of the audience necessarily, does not seek the approval of those participating, even doesn't worry about the feet or the 75-minute duration of, of the singer. Um, they have in mind what it is they want to do. So, yes, that singularity, that uh, sing, uh, singleness of purpose is certainly there with um, writers and writers who succeed. But again, we come back, and, and since we, in a way, are all talking around um, something that is tied in with modernism, we come back to a moment where art was at its um, most obstreperous, really, was, was at its most ready to tread on toes, to upset um, expectations and not make it easy. Mm. Is there, I mean, is surely in revolutionary times especially, there is an argument to be made that sometimes it should just be easy. Sometimes it should be satisfying to watch a movie or read a book or that, that rather for the audience to take you out of that. No, no artist, of course, is responsible for the entire <laughs> um, artistic project and there are all, all kinds. And while um, you know David might have blown all comers out of the water, the reality is at any moment uh, many people are writing or working in different modes. Um, so there does seem to be something um, oh, that smacks a wee bit of jealousy in the attacking of a particular artist for elitism. Mm. Um, can, can the elite uh, not have their release, not have their um, their pleasures as well? Well, it, it needn't be a case of elitism either. It's a, a particular kind of focus, a particular kind of attention that some people are prepared um, to make and Others aren't. And for those who aren't, of course there are other works of art that are more accessible. I think the problem is when we get too prescriptive and, and try and tell our artists, this is, this is what art looks like in times like these. Mm. Zadie Smith, the novelist who wrote uh, a book called White Teeth, mm. uh, gave a speech last month in which she talks about the, the idea that White Teeth was about uh, multicultural London. And she now gets asked in interviews 20 years later, were you wrong about multiculturalism? Is multiculturalism over? Um, and she talks about the fact that neither me nor my readers are in the relatively sunlit uplands depicted in White Teeth. But the lesson I take from this is not that the lives in the novel were illusory, Illusory? Illusory. Thank you. Uh, but rather that progress is never permanent and will always be threatened, must be redoubled, restated and reimagined if it's to survive. I don't claim that it's easy and I don't have all the answers. Well, let's start with that. Should, should artists have all the answers? Are there, is there an, uh, you know, when Wagner was writing, is there an idea that he's trying to get across? Is there yes. a point that he's trying to make? Did he think he had the answers? I think that he was just trying to convey his... His ideas. But if I can pick up on one of James' points, is that artists or teachers of artists hopefully would provoke, or the people from whom artists learn, would get some sort of lessons like what I call the so what factor. So you've made a pretty picture, so what? Mm. What are you trying to convey? You've written an entertaining novel, so what? You've written a nice piece of music. So what? What's it going to do? What are you doing this for? So you 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 learn along the line, along the way that you have to, if you want to be a true artist, a true creator, that it has to be a reason for doing it, not just making more paper or making yeah. So so by definition, then if it's got so you know if it reaches those reaches those criteria, then it can can and will be revolutionary because mm. it's different. 
Yeah, I, I will. I, I absolutely agree with you, but I would contest the idea of a point. A point seems to be, you know, speak to this idea of a, of a single message. Now, mm-hmm. if, if there was a single message coming out of a work of art, I, I'd want to appeal to the artist to to take all the obfuscation away and just give us your message. Just I mean, what, 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 what benefit is there in turning that one aphoristic sentence out into spinning it out in a five-hour uh, five opera? Mm. Against this, I, I absolutely agree that mm. the question that hangs over art is and exactly so what, but I see it as a, as a provocation. Uh, and the point can be the opening up of questions. The point can be... Um, actually initiating thinking that the artist doesn't sit at the back of with the answer already. You know, you've been in a classroom situation where you have a sense that the teacher is drilling you because they have an answer they want you to give. That's one kind of question. I have the right answer, and when you reach that, I'll say thank you and and we'll have done a good job. The other kind of question is much less comforting because you come up with your answer and you look to the teacher for reassurance that you've said the right thing. And they can't tell you, necessarily. It's, it's mm. up to you. You're, you're undertaking this reading the process. Inquiry. Yeah, mm. I guess that's the difference between art and politics. It's answering the questions, not telling us the answers. But then if you look at someone like David, that was heavily involved in politics. Was he, was he making a point or was he asking a question? Or can oh, you do both? I think he was doing both. Mm. And, um, you know, I mean, the Mara is... is uh, is when it worked. He he did many other works during this period, which were which were failures, artistic and political failures. Mm. Most famously, the the tennis court oath painting, which was never mm. finished. You know, um, for political reasons, because it was hard to you know paint a portrait of someone who, when they had their head cut off. Mm. Uh, <laughs> it's at least a nice painting. <laughs> yeah, um, but in the case of the Murrah, it all came it all came together. For this, for this brief moment, which is why um, some art historians you know, refer to this as, as the first modern work of art, because it was so contingent on the moment. It wasn't seeking some kind of universal, timeless truth. Which, um, which lots of art which has lots been of trying art, to do. Which lots of art yeah. had done, and David had done it himself in, earlier in his career when he'd painted you know, classical stories. So aren't there two sorts of revolutionary ideas here? So what I've, um, you know, we've read some of each other's work here and I, what I notice the difference between my choice of Richard Wagner and James's and David's is that the, your work or the artists you've chosen have definite societal influences and you taught James about how influential fiction was and on society and can Mm. revolutionise and is that a duty or is that a result Um, and I'm not questioning there the author's duty or the Mm. desire to do that and also paintings which we've, David and I talked briefly about Les Demoiselles d'Avignon which Mm. was the descent Mm. of um, figurative painting into Mm. abstractism and they're defining moments which is, they don't mean them to be societal ch- changes, but they were. Mm. Would you agree with that? Mm. Or yeah. Whereas I, I think Richard Wagner didn't give a damn. You know what? You know, it's nothing to do with society. 
which he didn't. He just went his own way and did whatever he wanted. But he had a an emotion and something to convey a, an overarching theme. And he, I suppose, financially he was pleased. He was received with some respect in the end, which sort of really life is all about money, I suppose, in some respect. <laughs> but, um, you know, incidentally, coincidentally on the way, he's revolutionary. Mm. I want to come back to a point that you made, David, about um, you may not, recognize it as this, but one of the things that has come up in, in a number of these discussions is the idea of luck around revolution, mm. that you need the right time and the right place and the right person mm. for the right people for it to work. Is that, I mean, is there an element of luck in that painting? Or was mm. it entirely deliberate? Well, I guess he was lucky that Mara was assassinated. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it gave him the perfect subject. Yeah. And... Um, Marat, and, not so much. Sorry? Marat, not so much. Not so much, <laughs> yeah. no. But, well, actually, Marat was, um, you know, if he hadn't been assassinated, he probably would have had to have been got rid of mm. because he was um, he was a dangerous guy. Yes. And for the revolution, probably. I for the like revolution. Yeah. And um, so, you know, to some extent, David's painting has redeemed Marat in history's eyes mm. as this great martyr, whereas, in fact, he was, you know, he was a bloodthirsty, you know, um, he wanted everyone dead. Yeah. Um, in fact, he he signs the uh, or he votes for the king's death when, uh, but instead of just voting for death, he says death in twenty four hours. Golly, James, you uh, quote Auden. I was quoting Auden when I. Yes. Yes, uh, saying that poetry makes nothing happen, um, and that this increasingly is a thing a, a thing that people think about. Shamelessly taken out of context, I should say, and (laughs) and people should read the whole poem. But yes, look, I think there's a sense um, that the arts and humanities, or the humanities, depends how you figure it, um, is is having to argue for its relevance. Um, And that for me, a teacher of fiction, the locus of that question is often why why is there a university course teaching made-up stuff? Mm-hmm. Fair question. I put it to my students, and they um, largely come back with quite unconvincing arg- arguments, I have to say. Um, and I suppose I don't want to make that case here. I don't want to you know, to, to find myself arguing for it, except to say that um, the persistence of uh, inventive art the idea that um, we haven't found the kinds of stories that people like and therefore all we need to do is keep reproducing them with a few changes, the sort of um, expectation we might have of Hollywood movies. Um, But rather we want to see what are the possibilities of the form. How might it change the way we think? How might it change the way we approach things? Now, we've been talking about the revolution as as primarily a social and political, um, you know, historical event. But revolution is also intellectual, uh, and that that comes up in our discussion about the formal aspects uh, of these works. It's quite interesting in the case of Kutsia, um his most well-known um, and well-received novel, Disgrace, um, uh, got, put him very much offside with the uh, black um, government in, South, in post-apartheid South Africa. It uh, represents... Um, to use the the crudest of shorthands, it represents black-on-white rape. And um, 
because there was quite a high statistical prevalence of this kind of violence, um, the black government said to Katsia, look, you're, you're not helping. We've, we've, we've had the revolution. We're now in the post-revolutionary state. We are seeking the rainbow nation. We're seeking that, you know, the afterglow. Uh, and it doesn't help when you draw a Attention, racist attention, the implication was, or was in fact made very explicit, um, draw attention on the more negative aspects of society. You have to give us time. But Kutsia's question was more fundamental, I think. The focus for writers like Gordimer was the political. Uh, I want to suggest that Kutsia's interest is the ethical. Now, the basis for any given revolutionary zeal is usually couched in ethical terms. It's it's a it's a it's the right thing to it's do. A, it's it's a the moral right good. thing to do. We ought to overthrow, um, you know, uh, abuse of abuse of power where we see it. Kutsia's question says, but what is at the heart of that revolutionary zeal anyway? Is is your violence really so different from the violence of the oppressor? Mm. A very a very hard question to answer, and certainly disgrace doesn't answer it. In fact, it's one of the most uncomfortable novels because where it goes and the kind of responses that some of the characters make um, seems either to verge on martyrdom, um, the character David's daughter Lucy who is raped, makes an accommodation with um, some local people which sounds desperately unsafe for her, uh, desperately unsatisfactory. She agrees to marry someone who may even have had some involvement in the attack on her. Um, The crudest way of reading this is to say she represents an example that none of us can use so this work is not relevant. Mm. But to think through those kinds of questions, to ask what our own personal responsibility, to move move beyond this idea that the artist is the one we're focusing on, let the novel reflect back on our own selves and our own commitments and our own beliefs, is, I think, you know, one area where literature can be relevant and mm. revolutionary. You said the government sort of said, you're not helping. And was his answer, it's not my job to help? That's not what I'm here for. Well, as I say, he's, he's um, very loath to directly engage, particularly with um, uh, non-academic criticism. His, his answers are usually in the forms of his novels. Every now and again we see fragments of those kinds of arguments crop up in his novels, in the novel The Master of Peter, Petersburg, um, we have a revolutionary who says, you know, enough with cleverness, enough with your your endless talk, your this and that, and you know, and it becomes a kind of a parody, a pastiche of of that sort of sensibility that says there's some time where it's best not to think, uh, and and by being on the side of thinking, Kutsia is not. Uh, on the side of bear baiting, if you like, yep. he's not going to engage in something where the terms uh, cannot be um, a full discussion, where they are shut down to that extent, where they're rendered in black and white terms, which is precisely what he is attacking, and ultimately, surely, what the end of apartheid sought. Mm. Mm. Um, David, can I? Well, yep. can I just pick up on that because I think I think what you're saying about Kutsi is very interesting because, you know, he's someone who, uh, well, uh, he's much more nuanced. He's much more um, 
prepared to have alternative views. Hmm. I mean, when you think about, you know, moments in revolution, most of the time you're asked to make a decision to be and on a, one and side. And a very black and yes. white decision mm. between one, one side or the other. other. And, you know, yep. let's face it, um, there's nothing black and white about David's art. You know, I mean, mm. it's it's uh, you have to you have to believe it, or or otherwise, you know, there's no point. Mm. Um, and most revolutions have produced very bad art, on the whole. You know, I mm. mean, the Russian Revolution, you know, did terrible things to Russian yeah. art. You know, I mean, you know, what happened to Kandinsky, and you know. And suddenly mm. we had this awful Soviet realism. Um, whereas in the case of David, I think uh, I think there was just this moment, and it was a very brief moment when it all came together. Um, but it's it's not it's not art that lets you have multiple views mm. at all. To go yes. back to that point about you're not helping, was he mm. trying to help the revolution? Oh yes. Absolutely, and that was it. And that would have been clear in his head mm-hmm. that that was that, that was, was a goal. He was a fully paid up member of mm. the of the you know the Jacobins. Is that yeah. does that go against? I mean, if the idea of being, you know, an artist is to to challenge and to make us uncomfortable and all of that sort of thing, if he was making the people with whom he was working comfortable. Mm while making the audience uncomfortable, and I'm leading to another question here, but while making the audience uncomfortable, is he still being challenging in the right way? Uh, that's where you get into the, I suppose, is it art or is it propaganda? Mm. Mm. Um, it, it is propaganda. I don't think there's any question, but it's also art it can be in both. this case. <laughs> We've talked a reasonable amount about the um, the responsibility of... Uh, the artist, what about the responsibility of the audience uh, to, to look at it? I guess especially with Wagner, you know, five hours sitting listening to opera, mm. um, that's not easy for a lot of people. What's no. the responsibility of the audience there? Well, feats of concentration. I also think it's a, it's a responsibility of the composer to beguile the and seduce uh, the listener into continuing to listen. And also the responsibility of the artists who are portraying the, mm. the work of the composer and the librettist to sell it in, in all respects. Otherwise, you know, there's very famous examples of works being resurrected for certain performers because no one else was interested in singing them or didn't have the technical facility. Mm. But I think in Wagner's case, he was very careful at the, um, to choose people when for these important works, and that was another form of his control, that he insisted on his uh, works being replicated as he wrote them, because before mm. that time, someone could just take a score and chop it down, do whatever they wanted, and he had no right. He didn't get any royalties, didn't get any rights, so he invariably changed those changed those rules. So he's and, to blame for copyright law. Totally. <laughs> uh, but that meant that he had an income, but also that he had some sort, could at some stage have some sort of control, certainly in the premieres, over who sang and first portrayed and so hence sell, sold his work to the audience. Um, and I think that's that's probably di- the biggest difference between the performing arts and the non-performing arts is that an artist or a writer has an opportunity to rework and rework and rework. But, of course, as does the composer, but in the end that is nothing about text on the page unless the com- performer gets up and performs it. 
It's a, it's a third party mm. in the revolution. There's a conduit between them, yes. between the between the yes. artist and the and the That's audience. Right. Yeah. So you have rubbish art, uh, rubbish performers. Then you're not going to sell anything. You're not going to. Yeah, yeah. You're not going to. And so then the audience is less than impressed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So mm. does rely on the the third party. Mm. Is the is the audience. Does the audience have to think about it? Is, 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 is that the responsibility of the audience to understand why his work was revolutionary, to understand why this is different than anything that went before it? Or is it acceptable to just sit and listen for five hours? Well, there are very... Wagner is one of these composers who whose music can take whatever director throws at it generally. And there are relatively few composers like that because the story is definitely, in other composers, definitely in one place. But in Wagner, you, and the canon has been, have different times. And Wieland Wagner, that's Richard Wagner's grandson, very famously changed the um, how... Uh, things were directed in the theatre by after the war and by Roy there wasn't much money so he produced these operas which had had very naturalistic settings on a bare stage with a disc and everything was done with lighting and that was very revolutionary at the time so that was that was Wagner's grandson um, it's but it can take anything that a director wants to throw at it generally and does do all the time and so yes in some respect it is and I have been in this experience you go to had this experience, so you go to a Wagner opera and you go, okay, so the director has seen some sort of connection between shoes being thrown over the scenery onto the stage and what the singer is singing about the story. But you, so in fact, I find that distracting because you're sitting there most of the time going, so what's the connection between, for those example, two things, not those two things, yeah. and you don't listen to the work of art. So theoretically, it should still be storytelling, but with a different slant. Mm. David, what about mm. if I'm looking at the painting? Am I is is my responsibility um, to do? Oh, that's quite pretty, and look at the colours he used, and isn't that lovely? Or is my responsibility to actually sort of think, what did he mean? What was this about? Why is he telling me this? I think I think it is yes. Um, you know, because to some, I mean, you have to respect the artist's intention, um, and and ask the question. You know. What is the you know who is this person depicted? You know what's going on? Why was this painted? Uh, I mean, those are the sorts of questions that you know we we ask and and my students ask all the time um, because you know most in most cases their sense of of history is um, somewhat limited. <laughs> So we should all know slightly more history than we do, mm. <laughs> especially art history. Um, uh, but by the same token, it's uh, am I is my responsibility as the audience to get out of it what the artist intended to me to get out of it, or am I free to think? Well, actually, I have a different interpretation. I think every uh, every person will will react differently, and that's perfectly valid. Uh, but I do think there's a responsibility to try and understand the original intention as far as that is possible. You know, in some cases we simply don't know what the intention was. Uh, but in the case of, of David, you know, we it's all very well documented. Um, and uh, but it's interesting that you, you bring that up because uh, when um, in 1989. Uh, which was the, um, you know, celebration of, of 200 years. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a huge David exhibition at the Louvre. And, um, 
And there was no mention of, da- of David's revolutionary involvement. Right. And the Mara mm. was not there. It was not in the exhibition. Because they because didn't want the to French, remember it? They didn't, they didn't want to remember it. Right. Yeah. And so that means that the, um, the context of a lot of his work has gone, right? Yes. Mm. Yes. And it's it was, you know, I think they found, they found it a bit embarrassing that their, you know, their great artist <coughs> was, um, was a revolutionary. James, the uh, what about for a, a novel? Because yeah. novels have so any very, number of interpretations. It's very interesting for me. Um, but one of my sort of key areas is literary theory, which, as everyone knows, became um, deeply objectionable in around the uh, around the seventies and eighties and onwards, uh, and it wanted to turn everything on its head, as it um, you know routinely does. One of the great divides that still exist in the disciplinary study of literature is this question of intentionality, um, whether we should remain committed to the idea that what we're seeking when we read is to come as close as we can to the artist's intention, or on the other hand, and this is a view associated with postmodernism and post-structuralism, whether the text is something more like a catalyst, something that triggers, uh, enables a process that happens in each individual reader's brains. Now, one thing I find with my students, they often are very resistant to a non-intentionalist approach and their great fear is that if, if we do away with author's intention as the, as the validating principle for our reading, then nothing means anything and we can say any mad stuff we want and everything's as good as everything else. And this is how postmodernism is typically caricatured in the press. Um, but of course... The nature of language, the, the same thing that um, Kutsia called language is automatism. Language is by its nature something that produces convergence. The reason we use language, the reason we are here searching for that correct word is that we are seeking to converge, to, to draw some agreement. So language is not by its nature something that simply frees us up. And yet, as um, the French philosopher Jacques Derrida very, you know, um, patiently unpacked, language will not be constrained either. It is a system of differences that leads outwards. So the very thing that it seeks, convergence, understanding, agreement, is something that language introduces as a problem. Um, if I don't understand a word, just to, to use an example, I look up in the dictionary, what am I given? I'm given a, a whole brace of other words to, to use to try and locate that word. If there are some words in the definition I don't understand, out and out I go, ad infinitum. Now, those of us who have a certain kind of education work very hard on convergence. We work very hard on getting a shared set of terms, a shared set of historical um, uh, points of reference that we can draw on. So we are interested absolutely in, in some kind of agreement in our interpretive efforts. But the text won't won't allow that. And I suspect that the reason some works remain durable is not actually because they're universal and timeless in the sense that there's something in them that remains unchanged. I think the reason that Shakespeare, for instance, is is so appealing is is as much to do with the fact that a work can be resituated in World War One um, context and uh, done as a as a feminist critique of you know patriarchal. Um, assumptions about ownership and so on. It's actually its openness 
to reinterpretation and reuse uh, and redirection that sustains it, that, that keeps us interested. But that also still requires a challenging thought. So, if, you know, do you know, so, so a feminist critique of the patriarchy is still a challenging thought. It still requires that that work to still make us uncomfortable, albeit in a different way. I think Margaret pinned it down beautifully by suggesting that on the one hand there is this, um, this responsibility to an attentiveness which is motivated, I think, by a desire to converge with the producer of the work. I have no doubt about that. But at the same time, the capacity to do something more, to do your own work, sometimes distracting to be sure, but sometimes um, absolutely illuminating. Those those two things can coexist. And, of course, any um, artist worth their salt knows this, and they, they won't abandon their audience wholly. You know, somewhere between Ulysses, brilliant worth the effort, and Finnegan's Wake, one strictly for the completists. You know, Kutsia lost... Uh, Kutsia, sorry, uh, Joyce, Joyce lost his love for the audience to too great a degree, I suspect. You know, lost his concern to accommodate his reader, made it too hard. You know, your question of accessibility comes up again. But we're, we're dealing with a continuum, and, I, uh, you know, to, to say that some degree of accessibility is a, a necessary... Um, first step is not the same as saying everyone should be able to read this particular work. And should everybody be able to view a, a work? Oh, of course. We'd, we'd love them. We'd love them mm-hmm. to. In two senses, I think. We'd, mm-hmm. we'd love them to have that experience. We'd also love them to be um, interested enough to go and seek that historical knowledge. That That lends depth to it. And that's why people come to university, of course, they are seeking that um, that extension of their understanding that will make the experience richer and more satisfying. That is a perfect place to end. My thanks to Dr. David Maskell, Dr. Margaret Medlin, and Dr. James Meffin from the University of uh, from Victoria University. Great Ideas was made in association with Victoria University. It was engineered by Phil Benge with production from Adam McCauley, and our executive producer is Tim Watkin. You can find other episodes of this series and more of RNZ's podcast at rnz.co.nz. Music